0: This is A-State Connections on KASU. I'm Jonathan Reeves. This is a weekly segment called A-State Connections and Create at State, Making Connections that Count. In the segment, we hear presentations during this year's virtual Created State Symposium. These are presentations from the College of Nursing and Health Professions. First is Teresa Clark with a presentation, Improving Medication Reconciliation Quality, during long-term acute care transitions of care.
1: The purpose of this project is to systematically improve the medication reconciliation process during all transitions of care by providing essential education to all involved staff members, incorporating the use of the standardized medication reconciliation toolkit to enhance the process, and of course, by evaluating the innovation outcomes. Transition of care occurs when a patient transitions from one level of care to another. During every transition of care, a formal medication reconciliation should be performed to ensure medication accuracy and prevent patient harm. The more transitions of care patient experiences, of course, the higher the risk for medication discrepancy occurring. Thorough literature review was conducted using systematic peer-reviewed articles from credible sources. Literature shows that standardized or systematic methods of medication reconciliation has lower discrepancy rates and higher patient outcomes. Development of medication reconciliation toolkit can enhance the delivery of high quality care. Diffu- Rogers diffusion of innovation theory was used to guide the implement and implement this proposed change. A needs assessment. Um, was performed medication reconciliation accuracy is a worldwide issue. During the needs assessment, it was noted that Arkansas Continued Care Hospital does not currently have a systematic medication reconciliation process in place. A standardized medication reconciliation process is in need is needed to enhance the quality of care and improve patient outcomes. So, as you can see in the illustration above, the pre implementation phase would give a um, a pre test, and that was just to determine baseline data of this nursing staff's knowledge then the implementation of the newly designed medication reconciliation toolkit was introduced post test was given to that way we could determine the accuracy of or level of success of the education and then of course the follow-up the results are still pending at this time completion the algorithm this out this illustration is the algorithm used to Analyze the medication reconciliation in 20 charts to determine the accuracy. A retrospective study was used to complete this analysis and gather this data. During the analysis, the first step was to determine if the medication reconciliation was accurate or inaccurate. And if it was not, then the process continued through these steps of the algorithm. Who was accountable for the incompleteness and what type of discrepancy was identified? This algorithm provided a step-by-step guide to conduct the analysis on each medication reconciliation. Descriptive statistics was utilized to collect this data. As you can see in the pie chart above, that is a representation of the 20 charts that were analyzed. Three revealed an accurate and complete process with no identified discrepancies. 13 of them lacked verification of medication reconciliation. Six had noted dosing errors. Five were found to have missing stop dates, and an additional six were noted to have omissions or duplications of medication. Based on these findings, an enhanced medication reconciliation process is needed to enhance the quality of care and patient safety. This is a quality improvement project. The methods that were used, of course, were the pretest, the post-test, the education, which was PowerPoint, the systematic process, which was the medication reconciliation toolkit, A PowerPoint presentation on medication reconciliation background and significance was given to all the involved staff. The goal was to expand their understanding and knowledge on the importance of the accurate medication reconciliation and with the new medication reconciliation process that was included. Post-test was administered after the education to measure the level of success. The newly designed reconciliation was introduced and implemented. After implementation, the additional 20 charts will be analyzed to gather the data to determine the success. The same algorithm will be used as the guide to determine um, the accuracy and to guide the analysis. The inferential statistics is being used to gather the post-implementation data. The results, barriers such as inclement weather, the COVID pandemic, as well as a chief nursing officer vacancy has all impacted the conclusion of this study. The post-implementation phase of this project is currently in process. To date. Eight charts have been evaluated post-implementation. Twelve charts remain to be analyzed. Of those eight that have been reviewed, six have shown complete uh, accuracy completed entirely. Two were incomplete, resulting in 75% accuracy, 25% inaccuracy. Therefore, the project to date is showing to be successful. Pre implementation data resulted in 85% inaccuracy. Additional follow-up is expected to result in a higher increase in accuracy and completion of the medication reconciliation process. The contributions of this study. Innovation should target evidence-based practice, improve patient safety, health outcomes, and enhance the overall delivery of healthcare. Improving quality of medication reconciliation by improving a standardized toolkit can achieve all of the above. Translating evidence into practice signifies of nursing, practice level of work competency. Evidence reveals a systematic toolkit improves accuracy of medication reconciliation. Improving quality can decrease length of stay, early readmission rates, improve patient safety and satisfaction, as well as be cost-effective. This contributes to practice to ensure the delivery of high-quality
0: care. That was Teresa Clark. Next is Cameron Leach with a presentation. A local clinic's statin use rates in patients with CVD risk factors versus the national average.
2: Cardiovascular disease is currently the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States, and we need to focus on some modifiable risk factors to help um, prevent adverse events such as stroke or myocardial infarction. Currently in the United States, about 46% of our population has hypertension, and it's predicted that by 2035, we will have about 45.1% of our population with cardiovascular disease. So it's very important that we prevent this as much as we can. The impact of cardiovascular disease and adverse events on our healthcare system is pretty significant. In the US, it costs about $219 billion each year to um, spend things on associated adverse events such as stroke management, In the beginning um, of diagnosis and as well as rehabilitation and therapy, trying to get the patient back to their previous level of functioning about 1.6 of every US or one in every six US dollars is spent on cardiovascular disease and its management. One of the ways that we can prevent adverse events is through statin therapy initiation. The U.S. Preventative Task Force um, released some guidelines and criteria on initiating statin therapy. Statins um, assist with lowering the lipid levels in the body and assisting to prevent things like um, blocked arteries leading to, you know, blocked carotids that cause stroke, um, and the LDL level needed to be greater than 190. The patients need to be between um, 40 to 75 years of age and either have a calculated 10-year risk assessment um, percentage greater than 5 or 20%, and they um, could also just have diabetes and qualify for statin therapy. Um, The 10-year risk percentage is um, kind of how at risk the patient is for adverse events to occur. It's like how at risk are they to have a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. The design method that I used to collect data was a retrospective chart review of about 50 patient charts. Um, I included those aged 40 to 75 years and they needed to have at least one risk factor associated with cardiovascular disease, either family history, smoking, um, they're diabetic or they have hypertension or they've had a prior myocardial infarction. Um, I also looked at age, gender, race, and if they were on a lipid therapy or what type of lipid lowering therapy they were on. In order to calculate their cardiovascular risk and their percentage, um, how likely they are to develop an adverse event or suffer from one, I needed to first identify the risk factors. Are they hypertensive? Do they have diabetes? Do they smoke? Then we need to look at their lipid levels. Is their LDL above 190 or um, is their calculated 10-year risk percentage over five or 20%? Um, Then you need to individualize their therapy. So are there reasons why they're not on a statin therapy? Um, Are they allergic? Are they intolerant? Things like that. The statin therapy adherence rate for the national guidelines um, that are currently recommended in the United States is 18 to 26%. So it's improving over the years. That's between 2003 and 2012. That's our latest data. Um, the local clinic that I looked at, their adherence rate was actually 84%. I had a small sample size of 50 charts, but that's, that's pretty good for a very, very tiny clinic. Um, the only patients that were not initiated on a statin therapy when it was indicated were about eight out of the fifty charts that I reviewed, and the patients were either allergic, intolerant, or they wanted to seek out um, lifestyle management um, prior to initiating statin therapy. So, some reasons that patients might not um, be initiated on statin therapy is their their lack of insurance coverage. So, statin therapy increased when the patients had more insurance coverage and it also increased as patients aged. Some ways that we can prevent cardiovascular disease overall is we need to do early identification through some screenings. So every time the patients come in for those fasting labs every three to six months, we can catch this and we can decide whether they need to be initiated on a statin therapy just by looking at their LDL and HDL levels um, or their total cholesterol in general. It's so important to do these preventative therapies and not only the medical therapies such as statin, we also need to work on the other modifiable risk factors because their cardiovascular risk percentage significantly decreased, for instance, when they just stopped smoking. So we also need to continue with education and working on the other modifiable risk factors in addition to medical therapy.
0: That was Cameron Leach. Next is Emily Marshall with a presentation. In vitro, Bactericidal effects of 415-NM blue light.
3: Phototherapy or light therapy can be used to help treat many medical conditions that affect the skin. Pseudomonas aeruginosa is a gram-negative bacilli bacterium. This bacterium is an environmental species and is naturally occurring in water and soil. An opportunistic pathogen, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, is a common cause of nosocomial infections. Pseudomonas aeruginosa can also be found in moist areas of clinical settings such as sinks and respiratory equipment. Objectives. This study is based on the use of blue light therapy to treat bird wound infections. Pseudomonas aeruginosa was tested on brain-heart infusion auger and treated with 415 nanometer blue light to measure the bactericidal effects of light exposure. Methods. 50 microliters of Pseudomonas aeruginosa stock, ATCC19660, was inoculated to 5 milliliters of brain heart infusion broth and incubated at 37 degrees Celsius for 18 to 24 hours. The Pseudomonas aeruginosa was then washed and resuspended in phosphate buffered saline. This was achieved by centrifuging the broth at 4,500 revolutions per minute for 10 minutes. The supernatant was removed using sterile pipettes and replaced with 5 milliliters of phosphate buffered saline. The solution was centrifuged again at the same speed and time, decanted, and replaced with phosphate buffered saline. The solution was resuspended using a vortex. Three milliliters of the pseudomonas origenosis solution was pipetted into a small petri dish to be treated with 415 nanometer blue light. The light therapy doses ranged from zero joules per centimeter squared to 60 joules per centimeter squared. Following the blue light exposure, 40 microliter aliquots of the treated pseudomonas origenosis solution were transferred to Heart Infusion auger plates. These plates were incubated at 37 degrees Celsius for 18 to 24 hours. The Pseudomonas aeruginosa growth was then diluted. This was achieved by making a 0.5 McFarland standard using phosphate buffered saline and treated Pseudomonas aeruginosa colony growth. The 0.5 McFarland solution was diluted to 1 to 10,000 using a serial dilution. 10 microliter aliquots of the diluted solution were inoculated to new brain heart infusion auger plants and incubated at 37 degrees Celsius for 18 to 24 hours. Colony counts were performed following incubation. Findings 415 nanometer blue light treatment inhibited in vitro growth of Pseudomonas aeruginosa on brain heart infusion auger. The highest dose of light had the greatest effect on bacterial growth. Here you can see a graph demonstrating the effect of the dosage of light therapy on the growth of Pseudomonas aeruginosa. We had three successful rounds of light treatment completed through to colony count. We also recorded our data from the control run on the graph, which included no light treatment of the Pseudomonas aeruginosa stock as well as a dose of 60 Joules per centimeter squared of light treatment. We used a control group with no light treatment to establish purity of the Pseudomonas aeruginosa stock and to obtain baseline colony counts. 60 Joules per centimeter squared was the highest dose that our light instrument would let us apply. As you can see, the trend line in the graph has a negative slope indicating that the Pseudomonas aeruginosa growth decreased inversely with the dosage of blue light treatment. In other words, the Pseudomonas aeruginosa colonies that had the highest doses of light had the least amount of colony growth on average. Discussion and action plan. The results of this study are promising for potential in the use of blue light therapy to treat wound infections. The next step following the study will be to inoculate the Pseudomonas aeruginosa strain to laboratory rats to measure the rate of burn wound healing in live subjects. Pseudomonas aeruginosa growth was affected by all dosages of light use, but growth of the Pseudomonas aeruginosa was inhibited most by the highest doses of light. The highest dose of light use in this study was 60 joules per centimeter squared because that is the highest dose of light treatment that is allowed for use on human subjects. The results of this study supported the data from other studies of a similar nature. Studies with similar subjects of experimentation investigated different factors that may affect the degree of bacterial inhibition, such as rate of delivery of light and the wavelength of light used. Other frequencies of light that have been researched range from 405 nanometers to 880 nanometers. Previous studies also tested other clinically significant bacterial species. Staphylococcus aureus, another common cause of nosocomial infections, was one species that was tested in previous studies. Propionibacterium acnes and Helicobacter pylori are two bacterial species that are not associated with clinical settings but were also tested using light therapy. Acknowledgements. This research was funded with a grant by the name of the use of photobiomodulation to treat effective wounds through the Arkansas Biosciences Institute. Much thanks to Zach McLean and Carly Farmer for their support and assistance in this study.
0: And that was Emily Marshall. Next, Lori Strider with a presentation, Percentage of Patients with Type 1 Diabetes that Follows American Diabetes Association's Treatment Recommendations.
4: This subject is of great interest to me, both personally and professionally. On a professional level, I have eight years experience in diabetes education and was once a certified diabetes educator. On a personal level, My mother lived with type 1 diabetes for over 60 years, and our 19-year-old son currently lives with type 1 diabetes. He uses an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor to manage his blood sugars. The purpose of this project is to determine what percentage of type 1 diabetes patients in a family practice clinic in North Central Arkansas are following treatment recommendations from the American Diabetes Association. In 2019, the American Diabetes Association changed their standards for medical care and diabetes to make either basal, bolus, analog insulin, or insulin pumps a grade A treatment recommendation for type one diabetes. The motivation behind this project is a 30% rise in type one diabetes cases we have seen since 2017, coupled with the fact that there have been significant advances in options for treating this disease. Insulin pumps have been available widespread since 2005. This complex technology more closely matches the physiologic function of the insulin producing cells of the pancreas. Advances in this technology are being made daily. In fact, there are currently insulin pumps that communicate with continuous glucose monitors and use algorithms to keep blood glucose within prescribed levels, in essence, an artificial pancreas. Type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease marked by destruction of the beta cells, which are the insulin producing cells of the pancreas. The cause of type one diabetes is multifactorial. Genetics and environment both play a role. It is thought that a trigger in the environment, such as a virus, provokes this autoimmune destruction of the beta cells. An interesting note, there is a limited small study being done currently in the United Kingdom that reflects a bump up in type one diabetes cases post COVID. This project is important because these recommendations are based on years of scientific evidence that blood glucose control is better when they are followed. Better blood glucose control equals fewer complications, and fewer complications represents an important and improved quality of life and lower medical costs long-term. This is particularly valuable in type 1 diabetes because 60% of these patients are diagnosed before age 14 and thus have potentially many years to live. The famous landmark study, Diabetes Control, and Complications Trial or DCCT from 1993 proved that better blood glucose control lessens the likelihood of retinopathy. Retinopathy is the destruction of retinal vessels behind the eyes, which if left unchecked will lead to blindness eventually. Other scientific studies done since 1993 have proven that blood sugar control also lessens the occurrence of complications such as nephropathy or the destruction of the filtering units of the kidneys, the nephrons. Overall, keeping blood glucose control under recommended levels makes for a greater quality of life and fewer costly complications. A report published by the Endocrine Society in 2014 projects a gap of 1,484 endocrinologists by 2025. There's simply just not enough of them to go around. Consequently, family practice providers must step up and help fill the gap and manage, or at very least manage this disease. This project was a retrospective data collection It was done over a 10 month period of time. 62 patient charts were examined to determine the treatment plan that was being followed. 62 patient charts with the ICD-10 code of E10 were examined with the following results. And honestly, they were quite surprising. 47% 47% of patients used a basal or bolus insulin regimen, 35% of patients were using an insulin pump, and 18% were using non-analog insulins. A total of 82% were following American Diabetes Association treatment recommendations for type 1 diabetes That is a surprising part to me. In a family practice clinic in North Central Arkansas, 82% of their type one patients are following ADA's treatment recommendations. Only 18% were not following treatment recommendations. The implications for this study are many. Uh, First of all, the family practice where this quality improvement project took place, the clinic could use this information Their marketer could take this information and share this positive data with the public as they promote the clinic. It also adds to the knowledge regarding how many patients are following ADA's treatment recommendations.
0: And that was Lori Strider. Now to hear segments like this one, you can subscribe to the Credit State Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast. as always, Take KASU with you wherever you go and listen to podcast segments on the new KASU app. And please tell others about the Credit State podcast and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You're listening to A-State Connections on KASU, streaming live at KASU.org.